Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good morning, everyone, and good evening to Ambassador Lee. Welcome to the Asia Initial Lecture Series. My name is Amanda Wan, and I'm the founder and coordinator of the Asia Initial Lecture Series at the Institute of World Politics. The Asia Initial Lecture Series was founded in 2019, and the objective of, of this lecture series is to broaden the scope and discussion on a range of intelligence, foreign policy and security issues attendant to the Asian geopolitical, socioeconomic, and cultural spheres of influence. Today, we have Ambassador Lee Jong-hun, who is a former South Korean government's ambassador for human rights, as well as its inaugural ambassador at large for North Korean human rights. And he will be discussing a lecture on human rights atrocities in North Korea. Ambassador Lee is Dean and Professor of International Relations at the Graduate School of International Studies, Yonsei University. Over the years, Ambassador Lee has regularly advised senior members of the South Korean government. His current domestic commitments include his role as chairman of Save NK, an NGO that helps the defector community, senior advisor to the Future Korea Weekly, a current affairs magazine, and chairman of the board of Dongwon Educational, Educational Foundation. Internationally, he's a board member of the Committee for Human Rights in North Korea, based in Washington, DC, an international patron of the Hong Kong Watch, a UK-based organization to promote Hong Kong's democracy, and an advisory council member of the International Bar Association's Human Rights Institute, also based in London. Ambassador Lee, thank you very much for joining us today. You're very welcome. It's a great pleasure. Thank you, Amanda, for the invitation. Sure. Um, okay, I lost the um, I lost your voice as well as visual. So I'm I'm assuming that you want me to go ahead with the um, with the lecture now. So Amanda and all the members of the Asia Initiative lecture series of the Institute for of World Politics. Um, I'm grateful for the opportunity to speak to you uh, on this topic, which is so urgent and so important, and yet. Um, in the recent several years, it's been um, it's been sort of put under the radar. It's been ignored, um, and that's a shame because for several years, especially from like 2013 to 2017 or so, there's been a gal. This issue had been galvanized, and the international community was really getting together to to address the North Korean human rights issue. But unfortunately, with um, with changes in the political uh, topography of the Korean Peninsula, as well as the United States, um, the issue has again sort of submerged uh, in the name of cooperation, uh, peace, uh, nuclear denuclearization, so on and so forth. So um, I know we have only about one hour, including Q&A. So and I have roughly about 60 slides to go through. Some of them are pictures and illustrations. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll just try to move as fast as, as I can. And I do want to start by talking about, um, by talking about 
human rights issue as a whole. Um, for I know that there are professionals um, and human rights experts um, who are attending uh, this lecture, but I also thought that there are you know a number of um, students. So I wanted to ask whether you know this picture rings a bell. It's Auschwitz, um, one of the Holocaust uh, concentration camps. During World War II, uh, the, the human rights issues, the, the concept of human rights, of course, it's been there for a long time, but World War II is really when the human rights issues become you know, focalized. And even during, um, before the war came to an end in 1941, um, FDR Franklin Delano Roosevelt's uh, State of the Union address, he, he would talk about the four freedoms um, the four freedom speech, the freedom of speech, the freedom of worship, freedom from want, and also freedom from fear. So based on these fundamental foundational freedoms, this idea of human rights would evolve and become more and more, people will become more and more aware. And particularly when the war came to an end after World War II, um, people began to hear about what had happened, um, particularly with regards to the Holocaust, the human atrocities committed by the Nazi Germany during the war and the, this genocide that took place um, in places like Auschwitz and Treblinka. Six million people, people being rounded up and killed, the systematic crimes against humanity. And once the international community became aware of, um, of what had happened. There was this deep sense of aversion to such crimes and, and, and a sense of renewed sense of commitment to prevent such things uh, from happening ever again. And then these, these ideas of crimes against humanity, genocide, war crimes, ethnic cleansing, these are all um, sort of like, you know, they're, they're the worst crimes in international law and, and they, the idea and how to deal with it begin to take shape in the post-war period. And particularly through accountability and rule of law. And accountability would really take shape through the tribunals on war crimes. Of course, you're all probably very familiar with the Nuremberg trials, uh, trying the Nazi war criminals. In Asia, of course, since the, you know, Japan was one of the Axis powers along with Germany, uh, there was a Tokyo war, uh, war crimes tribunal as well, where you know, a good number of the uh, political and military leaders were uh, tried and, and prosecuted for their war crimes. So there's accountability taking shape. What about the rule of law? Well, in 1948, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights would, um, would come into play. And this is a very, very important document. Um, this document declaration was um, um, taken up in December 1948 in, in Paris. I think a lot of people are familiar with Article One of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which 
which claims that all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. And this document uh, declaration has been translated into more than 501 languages, the most translated document in the world. But the important thing is that as important as this is, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is not um, uh, law, it's, it's not legally binding, but the principles are in the UN Charter. This is just an illustration of all the aspects of, you know, that's, that, that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights encompasses. So since the, the declaration is not actually a, a law, um, the UN and the international community makes efforts to, to adopt laws. Um, and this is how the international convention comes into play. The international, I'm sorry, international covenant comes into play. The UN adopts in December, 1966, the international covenant on human rights. And this will be, uh, this will come into, um, come into force from 1976. And this covenant is divided into two parts, international covenant on civil and political rights and economic, social and cultural rights on the other hand. So when you put together these two covenants, the covenant on civil and political rights and the covenant on economic, social and cultural rights, along with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, put together these three things are generally referred to as the International Bill of Human Rights. This just goes to show some aspects of, you know, what's, what's included in the economic, social and cultural rights, you know, the right to live, right to work, right to you know, education, medical health, so on. And then the civil and political rights, which deals with freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, uh, and so on. In Korea, um, in South Korea, that is, um, we, have a very, we have a very polarized society right now, even on the North Korean human rights issues, which, which is very, uh, unusual. I mean, there's no left or right when it comes to human rights. And yet, uh, we do have that division. Um, the, the left uh, tend to focus more on the economic, social, and cultural rights, basically saying that we should cooperate more economically, we should provide more assistance, because that's uh, improving human rights condition in North Korea. The rights the right or the conservatives in Korea um, tend to focus more on the civil and political rights, um, talking about the deprivation of the freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, all the political uh, aspects of you know, the gulags, the political prison camps, these are all falling into the category of the um, civil and political rights. With that, with, in, with the international law now in, in, in place, um, it actually begins to kick in um, and, and the international community uh, gets into action 
And some of the examples of how international law starts to work with international inter human rights law, um, primary examples can be the International Criminal, Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, Extraordinary Chambers in the Courts of Cambodia. Cambodia, of course, as you know, um, in order to prosecute the, uh, the Khmer Rouge and the killing fields. But we're not seeing anything. I mean, you would think that, you know, the kind of things that's happening in North Korea, that North Korea will be included here. But no, uh, it wasn't. So the international attention does not really begin to take shape until into the 21st century. So North Korea, despite the systematic and rampant human rights atrocities going on in that country, was very successful in, in avoiding the international attention and the international pressure to, uh, to improve the situation. These are some pictures of North Korea, you know, Changmadang and the Kotsebi, um, you know, homeless kids scavenging for food. North Korea is a country where all 30 articles of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights are being violated. The picture here is a public execution. I, I give this ID because you, know, you have no freedom to choose to live where you want to. You, know, you, you don't live in Pyongyang because you want to. You live in Pyongyang because you're allowed to and you can't move unless you're allowed to. That's within, within North Korea. So you, know, you can't imagine what it will be for, to, to travel abroad. This is one of the most cocoon societies, one of the most, an economy that has collapsed, that's for sure. And isn't that, isn't that amazing? Because we are the same DNA, North Korea and South Korea, North Koreans and South Koreans. My father is from Northern Korea, originally. Same people, but from 1945 onwards, a different, totally different political system communist totalitarian system in the north, liberal democracy in the south. And this picture is the result of the political system, despite having the same people. And in fact, I might add here that North Korea economically was actually better off than South Korea until 1974. So North Korean economy bigger than South Korea's until 1974. That sounds pretty amazing, right? When you consider that, you know, it's South Korea that has the Samsungs and LGs and Hyundais and North Korea has nothing. And yet until 1974, that's, that was the case. Why? Because during the Japanese colonial rule, it's the Northern part, which is mineral rich, not a lot of natural resources. So the Japanese authorities industrialized the northern part and southern part was much more agrarian. That's why even after the uh, 1945 period, 
it was really the northern part, North Korea, that was industrially and economically more advanced than South Korea. <clears throat> Given all that's going on in North Korea, um, why, why do we not hear enough about the human atrocities, human rights violations? Where's Bono? Where's Angelina Jolie? When I became the human rights ambassador in uh, 2013, one of the very first things that I did was to write to about 30 Hollywood celebrities, um, singers, actors, including Angelina Jolie and her husband, Brad Pitt, um, along with whole, you know, a lot of other people, um, sending them not only the letter, but a CD to show them uh, some aspects of human atrocities that's being committed in North Korea and, and, and asking for their help to, to support, but it didn't really work out. So you have to ask the question, why is that? The, why, is that? Why, why not North Korea? Why is the international community, why are these celebrities? I mean, Angelina Jolie has like some, I don't know exactly how many, but I think she has like 30 titles um, from the UN alone ambassador for the refugees, ambassador for this and that. Um, this is because North Korea is without a doubt the most closed society in the world. Nobody can get in. There's, there's a lack of visual image, unlike other atrocities. I mean, you know, Syria, um, Africa, the, the, the war between the Hutus and Tutsis, you have, you have um, documentaries and you have pictures, visual illustration. With North Korea, we have none of that. All we have is the testimo testimonies or testimonials by, the, by those who've escaped North Korea, defectors, North Korean defectors. That's why we don't have this sort of attention that's why we don't have a global campaign that we had, for, for example, against the apartheid system in South Africa. But in, this is a country that even the Doctors Without Borders, who were there in the middle part of the 1990s, decided to pull out because, and I asked uh, one of the um, doctors was, was with this organization who was in North Korea. Why did you pull out? I mean, if, if there's one place that's, uh, that really needs you, North Korea has to be it. And the answer was that they're there, but they can never have access to, to, to the targeted people. They want to reach out to certain people, but they have no access, absolutely none. The only people that they can reach out to are the ones that the government, North Korean government, permits them. And in may, many cases, it's all fabricated, even the orphanages. And therefore, they decided to pull out. These are some images that you might be familiar with. We have no such real images. We have pictures, we have words, but no such pictorial image. And this is a very powerful thing. And this is what's needed. Who knows? Maybe 
with a with the advancement of uh, more sophisticated drones, we we might at the end of the day be able to get some pictures of the political prison camps in North Korea and see with our own eyes what is really happening. But uh, until then, it's very difficult to persuade and and make this a global campaign um, because precisely because we have no such images. As we enter the 21st century, um, the international community begins to take greater interest in what is happening in North Korea. Um, Secretary of State John Kerry, once in reference to North Korea, he denounced the isolated North Korea, the Asian nation, as an evil, evil place. There's evil that is taking place in this country. Former Commission of Inquiry Chairman, Chairperson Michael Kirby, the esteemed um, Justice of Australia, concluded that North Korea has committed horrors on a level with the Holocaust. I mean, that's a powerful, powerful statement. So North the international community slowly but surely is catching on to the situation, human rights situation in, in North Korea. So evil things are happening. Um, there's, there are cruel things happening. Well, what are some examples of cruelty? I mean, there's just so many, but I mean, this is just one example of the North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un, killing his own uncle, I mean, Jang Sung-tek. Um, he's no saint himself, but still, he's, he's, he's your blood. His uncle of, of Kim Jong-un, and yet he will be summarily executed. in a most barbaric way. And he was number two guy in North Korea. Number two, generally considered to be number two after Kim Jong-un. And he was purged, gone. So when someone as powerful as Chang Sung-pek is handled in such a way, can you imagine what life will be, what life could be for ordinary people? I show this picture only to, you know, to highlight the cruelty. I mean, just immediately after his uncle was executed, uh, Kim Jong-un is, um, you know, examining the new ski resort in North Korea, laughing. He also kills his own brother, older brother, Kim Jong-nam, and you probably all heard about you know, how he was um, um, assassinated in the, at the Kuala Lumpur uh, International Airport in 2017 using um, VX nerve, nerve agent, which is subjected to UN sanction. <clears throat> Here's Kim Jong-un. Kim Jong-un, along with seven others, 
when Kim Jong-il died, his father died, all but two remained. Everyone else purged. I'm sorry about the Korean here, but you know, just to show that through the three generations of the Kim dynasty, it's purging after purging after purging. So think about North Korean human rights. And, and I often ask, okay, what comes to your mind? What comes to your head? Okay, when you when you talk about North Korean human rights, is there anything that you know pops up in your head? Um, we know that some you know things bad are happening in North Korea, but um, nothing really sticks out. Well, I would say that in terms of the North Korean human rights violations, um, something one thing that really needs to be you know addressed. Um, is the political prison camps, okay, political prison camp. This is where the cruelest of the cruel um, atrocities are taking place. North Koreans are, you know, they're not treated like human beings at all. And death after death, so political prison camps. And when we're talking about these gulags, you know, political prison camps, and you're probably mostly familiar with this uh, Yodok. Yodok is uh, one of the most uh, well-known uh, prison camps. We're not talking about like prisons where there are like 500 or, or 1,000 inmates. We're talking about like a town where there are as many as 50,000 living. Uh, some are born there uh, and die there. Some are put into these political prison camps without even knowing what their crime is. They would never find out. Some who will find out would find out that, you know, it's their distant cousin or aunt who might have lived in Japan and therefore you're classified as a, um, as a, um, in, a, in a class where, where you're considered as an enemy of the state. North Korea, of course, denies that, um, that these political prison camps exist in North Korea. I, they keep saying this over and over again. And yet, as recently as last year, the HRNK, the Committee for Human Rights in North Korea, a Washington-based uh, NGO, one of the best uh, hardworking um, NGOs uh, in the world, I would argue, um, published this um, satellite picture taken evidence that shows that political prison camp certainly exists. And this was a, this was Gangdong camp in Pyongyang, about 15 kilometers from the center of Pyongyang, um, where they, where they, it's like a mine for um, limestones. <clears throat> Defectors or refugees are another aspect of North Korean human rights that's, um, that's really very significant issue. Um, the problem, and this is, this is a picture of one of the defectors. Um, and this was another, this was an event um, organized by HRNK in Washington 
in 2009 and she was talking about how she was tortured and and her experience and and you know it just sounded so horrible that you know there seemed to be some who you know you know put on a face that no can they can that really happen so that's why she you know stood up on a chair to show uh, the evidence of the torture that she had to go through and lifted her you know uh, a dress to to show the scars on her leg I mean can you imagine we get a little scar on our finger and you know it's very painful but to be left with this kind of scar, can you imagine the type of torture that she's gone through? And that's that's the problem with the North Korean defectors. We now have well over 30,000 living in South Korea. Uh, there are, what, I think about 200 in the United States. But a problem within this bigger problem is the is that significant number of the defectors are women. Women ratio of those defecting has stead steadily risen to be in the 80s, 80 percentile. It's a huge number. Why so many women? Women because they're easier to target by the brokers especially the younger one, to sell off in China to brothels or to as, as, as um, servant or, or what have you, even surrogate mothers. I mean, some of the stories that these women go through are just so gory. Okay. And North Korean women detectors testify that 80 to 90% are subjected to some sort of sexual assault, including rape. <clears throat> Another problem um, rising from this um, issue of defectors in China, because once they, they defect, it's not like they're all able to go to like Thailand or Laos or come to South Korea. No, many of them are just stuck in China before they get an opportunity to escape to a third country before being, um, you know, being able to come to South Korea or to Britain or to the United States or elsewhere. So while over, over the years, so many of the, um, the women detector, defectors um, bore children to Chinese males and the number of, and some of them ended up, end up being, and being or orphans. And Tim P Peters, who, who works on this issue over uh, many, many years, and one of the um, best experts on these issues claims that there can be as many as 50,000 uh, orphans in China, North Korean orphans. <clears throat> there are countless other violations, uh, human rights violations, <clears throat> family reunion, it's all political. Okay? There's been like 20 uh, meetings, but it's only led to like 20,000 or so meeting of divided family members. How cruel is that? You're not, you know that they exist, but you can't meet them because North Korea would not allow, allow them to meet. 55% of the 130,000 applicants are already dead. So this will not happen for them. 
And even for the remaining some 60,000, about 70%, almost 70% are over 80. So time's running out. North Korea also abducts foreign nationals, Japanese, Jordanian, Thai, Chinese, certainly South Koreans. They don't return. Also, many um, kidnapped South Korean citizens during war as well as, well as the after, after the war. They don't return the POWs. They persecute Christians. There's rampant sexual violate, uh, violence going on in the military, North Korean military, and all other uh, parts of the society. Torture, infanticide, forced abortion, child labor, exposure to nuclear radiation in nuclear sites. These are just, you know, and the list goes on when it comes to North Korean human rights violations. <clears throat> Inter international community um, really starts to, particularly the UN, um, starts to look into this um, from 2003, the North Korean Human Rights Resolution is adopted for the first time by, at the UN Human Rights Council. And in 2004, the special rapporteur for North Korean human rights uh, was appointed. And from 2005 and every year, the General Assembly of the UN adopts North Korean Human Rights Resolution. Um, probably most significantly, in 2013, the Commission of Inquiry was established. And after one year of investigation, it came up with a report, COI report, which was a um, you know, which was probably the most comprehensive overview of what is happening in North Korea. Which was, of course, as I mentioned earlier, chaired by Michael Kirby. Some of the most significant key, key points of the COI was that crimes against humanity has been conducted, has been committed in North Korea. And that there, there are lawful foundations to prosecute the violators, including the leaders of North Korea. And this could be done by the Security Council referring this issue to the ICC, International Criminal Court. <clears throat> COI recommendations included a, to the North Koreans, a comprehensive reform to the UN that the Security Council referred this issue to the ICC. North Korea is very nervous about this aspect. It also, also um, told China to stop aiding and abetting crimes against humanity. Why? Because China kept sending back North Korean defectors knowing fully well that they will be persecuted. China was not abiding by the principles of the so-called non-reformant. You're not supposed to do that. <clears throat> um, 
North Korea, when the UN General Assembly, the COI came out and the General Assembly was, uh, was adopting some of the COI recommendations, and this also became, became an, uh, um, put on the agenda of the Security Council, um, <clears throat> North Korea for the very first time starting, started showing signs of nervousness. And, you know, it, it, it went into this charm offensive, releasing uh, Kenneth Bay, you know, the Jeffrey Fowle, some of the Americans that they had detained in North Korea. They also even invited uh, Marzuki Daruzman, who was the special rapporteur at the time. If only the General Assembly resolution would leave out the ICC part and the crimes against humanity part. That didn't happen. International community was really um, inspired by the COI. I mean, Canada, for example, in 2013, um, would declare a North Korean human rights day. Botswana would sever diplomatic relations after 40 years of relationship with North Korea, so on and so forth. Uh, because of the time limit, I'm not gonna go into all the details. By the way, uh, we'll be um, um, turning this PPT materials to the organizers so that if you're, uh, if you want to come back to some of these um, slides, then you're, I'm, I'm perfectly, perfectly happy uh, to do that. So things were actually mo moving along and going pretty well, um, only to be set back by a couple of developments, a couple of major developments. One is the summit diplomacy between the United States and North Korea. There was a confusion of mixed signals. I mean, in the beginning, President Trump was calling Kim Jong-un, you know, rocket man, and, and you know, there was this like war of wars. Then all of a sudden things would change where he's beginning to, President Trump begins to refer to Kim Jong-un as some sort of a um, partner that he can actually, you know, deal with. I don't know if he really felt that, you know, denuclearization was possible, but there was this complete sudden shift um, leading to the summit meeting in Singapore that sort of brought Kim Jong-un from a status, status of obscurity. I mean, Kim Jong-un never even met Xi Jinping at this, you know, by this time, during this time. It's only the Singapore summit with Trump that would catapult Kim Jong-un as some sort of like a world leader. So this was a mistake. And whilst this, all this was happening, human rights issue just went down the drain not focused at all. Human rights issue wasn't discussed during these summit meetings. I mean, if you think that you could 
deal with North Korea diplomatically and persuade North Korea to give up its nuclear weapons, well, good luck to that. I mean, there are lessons of the six-party talks. It just never happened. The second turning point or setback is the emergence of a new government in South Korea also in 2017. The previous government, Park Geun-hye, got impeached and a new government under Moon Jae-in comes in and he has a totally different perspective of North Koreans and therefore a policy towards North Korea. The Moon government um, does not want to focus on the human rights issue. The Moon government wants to focus on cooperation, assistance, peace, national approaches. And that will be reflected in certain policies, most uh, famously in 2019. I don't know if you, anyone is aware of how there, were, there was uh, like two North Koreans who came to Korea. Uh, and wanted to be, you know, one, they, they made it clear that they wanted to defect, but they were sent back. They were sent back to North Korea because it was claimed by the South Korean government that these two were murderers. They murdered their shipmates and these were bad people and therefore they had to be sent back to North Korea. That's travesty. I mean, by our constitution, North Koreans are within South Korea's jurisdiction, which means that by when they come defect to South Korea, it's not like you know they they apply for citizenship. No, they're re basically recovering their citizenship. So to consider them as non-Korean citizens and send them. I mean, have you heard, where have you heard of a country where you, where you just send um, people and kick them out of the country because you consider them as criminals to a foreign country where they will be killed or persecuted for sure? I mean, it, it was incredible thing this, you know, when, when this happened. This was the, you know, South Korean government's reasoning. There's, you know, criminals pose a threat to South Korean society. Uh, they cannot be recognized as refugees because, because they're criminals. Um, none of this really fits into the existing South Korean law. I mean, there should be some fact check. It was illegal because the South Korean government at that time ignored the responsibility to protect our own citizens. You cannot expel your own citizen against their will. They didn't want to go back to North Korea. Right to life was ignored. Presumption of innocence was ignored. They were considered criminals after like not even two days of investigation. It violated UN Convention on Refugees and it violated UN Convention on Torture. During, under our new government, or well, Moon government, um, other aspects really needs to be called out. 
for example, South Korea declines to co-sponsor General Assembly's North Korea Human Rights Resolution for the first time in, since 2008. That was quite embarrassing. There is a North Korean defector who sends balloons to North Korea, Park Sang-hak. His office is raided by police. And his things in his office are confiscated. He's summoned by the police for investigation. All this because Kim Yo-jong, Kim Jong-un's um, sister, uh, went on a tirade. You know, she ex sent out a message that she's very, very angry about these uh, you know, balloons and messages coming to North Korea from South Korea. Very recently, South Korean Foreign Minister Kang Kyung-hwa, um, in a hearing at the National Assembly, um, Tae Yong-ho, the opposition party member now, asked, you know, why, why aren't you appointing a new ambassador for North Korean human rights? So basically my successor. So my, the position that I, I had assumed has been vacant for three years. And her answer was that, well, I'm not appointing a new ambassador because there's no particular area of work for, for, the, you know, for the ambassador to work in. Well, I'm showing the next few pictures to, to demonstrate that this is really not true. That's not the case at all. This is um, my time as ambassador for human rights, giving Korean delegation speech at the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva, which I did every year uh, in, in March. And then in fall, I will go to the General Assembly in New York and do the same thing, give, giving delegation speech uh, at the third committee of the General Assembly. <clears throat> I held number of um, conferences. This one uh, happens to be with the CSIS um, with Victor, you see Michael, um, Bob King, Sonia Biserko. Uh, we did that for two years and the third year to commemorate the uh, COI. Um, I organized a, um, a similar conference with the AEI, America Enterprise Institute, also in Washington, D.C. I gave a um, hearing, I, I participated in a hearing and gave a, a talk. Um, which was organized by Chris Smith, who is chairperson of the subcommittee on Africa, global health and human rights. This is with the Zaid Rad Al Hussein, the high commissioner for human rights. I invited him to Yonsei University to talk. This was in Seoul, uh, happened to be the largest um, international conference on North Korean human rights. I think today about 600 people participated at the Plaza Hotel. I'm sorry, Joseon Hotel. Was invited to the EU Parliament's Committee on Human Rights, where I delivered the keynote speech. There I am. Participated. Um, George Bush is very, you know, has a very keen interest in North Korean human rights, um, and he's very close with a lot of the defectors. So 
Um, I participated in, in one of his um, conferences. I created what is called the Sages Group with uh, you know, many different um, um, activists for North Korean human rights, uh, visiting President, the then President Park Geun-hye at the Blue House. In UN, um, getting an audience with uh, then the Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. So there are things to do. So, you know, to say that, um, you know, there's no work for ambassador for North Korean human rights is, uh, um, is really yeah, nonsense. This, um, so what, you know, what can the world do? Uh, what are some options that's, um, that might be available? Well, ICC referral is still on the table. Given the division and the Security Council may be uh, difficult, but it's you know it's been done before in Darfur and also in Libya. The General Assembly has a resolution called Resolution 377, Uniting for Peace. When international peace and security and Security Council is not acting, the General Assembly can do something about it. The universe universal jurisdiction it's um so prosecuting someone in a third country so like spain prosecuting pinochet so north korean uh, leader can be prosecuted by a third you know third third country court that's another possibility ohchr human rights office in seoul which is here can do more um celebrities can be mobilized the global campaign can benchmark the anti-apartheid movement. For example, um, South Africa was um, boycotted from participating in any of the sports and, and cultural activities. And its position at the UN was um, discredited where it could not participate in any of the committee members for until 1994 when Nelson Mandela became the president and apartheid became you know, abolished. So if you're a student, you know, what can you do? Oh, I'm, you know, is there anything that I can do to make a difference? Sure, I mean, you can, you can hold small events such as film festival, picture galleries, fundraising events, arranging defectors to speak, uh, research, on North Korean human rights topics from international law, human rights, international organized organization perspective. You can actually help stranded defectors in China by joining, or, you know, like NGO student run NGOs like Link. Music and talk concerts to raise awareness, writing letters to global leaders and celebrities. Write to President Trump, write to um, Xi Jinping, write to um, you know, famous people to raise their awareness. So that's, that would be my sort of like small suggestions to uh, what you could possibly do. I, I think my time is kind of up. I think I've already uh, overspent. So um, thank you very much for this opportunity to speak to you. Um, it was a great pleasure, and I, I'm, I'm happy to field some questions if you if you have any in the remaining minutes. Thank you, Ambassador Lee, for your insightful presentation. And now uh, we'll take questions. The first question is, 
Has the current Trump administration been harmful to awareness of these human rights violations? Do I do I just answer? Yeah, you can go or, ahead and answer. Oh, okay. Um, it's very strange because actually in the earlier part of the Trump administration, we were really encouraged by what President Trump was doing. If you remember, he actually invited uh, Mr. Chi Sung-ho uh, to his State of the Union speech, right? And there was an occasion where he also invited uh, like seven or eight North Korean defectors to the White House. So he actually championed North Korean human rights in the beginning part of, the, of his um, administration. And then the Singapore, his meeting with, uh, with Kim Jong-un and, and this um, wishful thinking, the hope that somehow maybe by meeting him that he could sort of charm, use his charm to persuade you know, Kim Jong-un to de you know, denuclearize. And I think that became the, the top priority. And to do that, he started just ignoring the human rights issues um, from that point onward. So in the beginning, he was very helpful and he was very encouraging. But from Singapore um, and onwards, um, yeah, I would have to say that it's been harmful. Uh, he, has to, he has to do more. Thank you. And the second question is, why is the government of South Korea silent on these atrocities? Because as I mentioned in, the, um, in my lecture, the, the, the current South Korean government has a very different um, agenda when it comes to inter-Korean relations. It is much more interested in um, inter-Korean cooperation um, as evidenced by, for example, the, the declara Pyongyang Declaration where there's heavy emphasis on the you know, disarmament and, and interaction like you know, building railroads, linking railroads and economic cooperation, cultural and sports activities. So there's, with that kind of an agenda, there's no room for addressing human rights uh, issues. Addressing human rights issues um, this government thinks that it provokes North Korea. And provoking North Korea uh, will lead to uh, nothing. And it also probably believes that addressing human rights issue is futile because it's not going to lead to anything. I think that's, very, that's a very defeatist um, uh, approach to the issue. Thank you. And the third question is, the sanctions you mentioned that were levied against Kim Jong-un for his human rights abuses in June 2016. Can you gauge how effective these have been while the focus of sanctions against North Korea remains with nuclearization issues? Is there more that can be done in terms of sanctions that is specific to human rights issues? Well, I think it's only fair to point out that the most of the, the Security Council sanctions on North Korea are has to do with the North Korea's WMDs, so nuclear um, nuclear tests, as well as the 
missile tests, missile launches, right? Um, so it's really the sanctions by the US government, right? And the um, EU, Japan, and even South Korea, South Korea's earlier previous government do place sanctions on North Korea. And sure, of course, sanctions do work. It is stifling. Why do you think that North Korea is really pressuring the South Korean government to, um, to help North Korea in terms of lifting the sanctions? Okay, they wouldn't be saying it if it wasn't hurtful, right? But I think um, it will be even more effective if China genuinely came on board in enforcing the UN sanctions, UN as well as the international community sanctions, but China is very porous. Okay, there are all sorts of um, uh, holes um, in terms of China-North Korea border. And I mean, you know, do you really think that North Korea conducts international financial transactions uh, under North Korean people's name in, in, at you know, financial institutions or banks in China? So if you start clamping down on those issues, there's no way that North Korea can withstand the sanctions in place. But China doesn't want to go that way. Okay? China, I don't think, wants to um, go with the sanctions to the point where North Korea, uh, could it, the regime could, could even collapse. And therefore, China is turning blind eye to a lot of the things um, and, and it is allowing to, you know, for the regime to survive on. So China is one of the key factors uh, for the sanctions to be even more effective and it's preventing it from, it's preventing the sanctions from being more effective. Thank you. And the next question is, as Ambassador Lee Jong-un mentions, the Commission of Inquiry was a landmark moment in making human rights atrocities in the DPRK public. But the DPRK government has constantly refused to, refused to acknowledge or engage on its contents. Does the ambassador genuinely believe the international community can change the current on the ground human rights situations in the DPRK while the current regime is in place? I believe so. Um, I believe that, um, I mean, if you don't believe that and therefore not try, then, you know, we are, we are um, complicit, right? Because we're turning blind eye to what is happening um, by simply saying that, you know, oh, it's not gonna work. So um, I believe that if the international community really uh, put the clamp on, and I think the focus has to be on China as well, right? Um, then I think it may not lead to a, you know, we're not going to see North Korea becoming a normal state. But I think, you know, I think at, you know, at the prison camps or, or, or you know, people are beginning, people will begin to start looking behind their shoulders. So those, those people who are sort of in charge of the prison camps or whatever. So let me give an example of, of, of Germany. Before the unification of Germany, West Germany um, set up this, this uh, repository, human rights repository, 
called Salzburg. I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Salzgitter. Salzgitter. And when they when they established that, it really, you know, it really um, affected the psychology of the East German sort of, um, you know, officials, knowing that whatever they do is being recorded. What happens if there's unification or things change, then they can become targeted as criminals. And it changes their behavior. So that's the kind of uh, effect that we're, we're, we were hoping to create. But the current circumstances are really bad right now. Okay, we're, we're really, um, um, conditions are not good, but nothing is permanent. So things will change. New administrations will come in and who knows uh, what will happen. Thank you. And due to the limited time, um, we'll just take uh, questions from two more people. So one is actually from um, two questions from one person. Uh, yeah. Could he discuss any diplomatic efforts that he was involved with to obtain legal accountability for crimes against humanity after 2014, including with regard to international abductions and DPRK overseas workers where jurisdictional issues are less limited? Yeah. The second question is, does he think that it would be worthwhile to revisit the COI recommendation to establish a human rights contact group of concerned states? Okay, very, uh, very good questions. Um, the, could you repeat the first, the first question? Sure. The first question was, could he discuss any diplomatic efforts that he was involved uh, right. with? Right, okay. So um, these are very, very um, important issues in terms of the kidnapped citizens, uh, foreign citizens. Um, so I work, I do work very closely, even after, um, you know, my, my tenure was over as ambassador. So I, I still continue to work with the Japanese government, for example, because Japanese government is very, very high on the, uh, on this issue of uh, kidnap Japanese citizens, but they also, um, uh, invite like, um, the, Family members of the Thai victim of uh, of being kid uh, who was kidnapped from by the by the North Koreans. Um, so you know, my general hope was to you know because there are so many different countries where the kidnapping took place that this becomes a you know the global international issue of kidnapped uh, citizens by the Japanese government. So uh, we did, you know, we did make um, efforts towards that end. Um, the second part of that question was, um, oh, the overseas laborers. Yeah, that's a huge issue also because um, I did make um, efforts to, because there were quite a lot of um, North Korean overseas workers in, in Europe, in um, Poland, Malta. And the thing is, if there's um, crimes being committed uh, in terms of human rights violations of, of North Koreans in your country, let's say, for example, Poland, then the Polish government can use that as a pretext to, to go directly to the ICC 
So this is a way to skirt the, um, the Security Council referral to the ICC. Uh, in these countries who are members of the ICCs, where there are North Korean laborers and their human rights are being committed, these, country, these countries who are ICC members can directly uh, go to the you know, ICC um, you know, chief prosecutor to uh, kick in the process of investigating North Korea. So yes, I did um, make such efforts, but uh, I think some of these countries, including Poland, were quite hesitant. And right now, I think in Europe, particularly with the EU, and this you know, issue became very uh, embarrassing. So there are no longer, um, you know, um, most of the North Korean sort of labor laborers, uh, slave laborers, we call them, uh, have been returned back uh, to North Korea, and they're not taking uh, North Korean workers anymore. They still exist in China and, and Russia in, in huge numbers, but of course we have no control over them. Thank you, Ambassador. And this is our last question. Clearly, clearly the U.S. is, as you correctly pointed out, more focused on the nuclear issue than human rights abuses. If the U.S. were to accept North Korea as a de facto nuclear state, could the focus then be more directed against the human rights issues? My simple answer will be no. Um, I think it will be it will make things even worse. Okay, that's precisely what North Korea wants, and I don't really think that I don't think that's the position of the U.S. government ever to somehow eventually recognize North Korea as a you know uh, legitimate nuclear state. That's a, that'll be disastrous. Okay, there's a power asymmetry. How is South Korea going to you know live with a nuclear North Korea, okay? We're, we, are, we are prevented from, we meaning South Korea, from going nuclear ourselves because there's still the hope that the international community, US included, and the you know, MPT or, you know, to, to somehow, even including China, to somehow convince North Korea to give up its nuclear weapons and denuclearize North Korea. Maybe that will happen with a change in, you know, change in the leadership, uh, who knows? But I don't, I don't really think that, you know, this should ever be a, a, an option to somehow recognize North Korea as a um, legitimate nuclear state and to suggest that, you know, then North Korea feeling, you know, maybe legitimate and, and safe that it would start improving um, the human rights conditions. I think it would only worsen the situation if, that that's ever possible. Thank you, Ambassador Lee, for joining us today. And thank you very much, everybody. It was really great, insightful presentation. And I think it's really important to keep raising the awareness of this important topic and keep discussing and figuring out um, solutions in order to help those North Korean people who are suffered inside North Korea. Thank you again very much, everybody.